you know, you hear about Lego and that company, which is a family business, and they do uh, attribute some of their success to being a family business because they're like, look, we had to figure it out because we couldn't quit. So there is something about being trapped that can create virtue and goodness, but not being a family and calling yourself one is a problem. It creates massive issues around if you want to be direct and honest and hold a high bar of performance. It's really tough. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. When companies get to a mature stage, that being the scale-up stage, if you ask founders what they would go back and do differently, if anything at all, the number one thing that they say is culture. Culture is very hard to get right, and it's harder to get right the further down the roadmap you go. The further you scale, the more mature you come, the more market traction you get, the more team members that come on board. It's harder to go back and just design or implement culture. It has to be intentional, has to be built from the conditions that you create for everybody to align internally. And so Sam Korkos, co-founder and CEO of Levels, and Tim Kendall, one of the earliest employees at Facebook, also an investor in Levels, the two of them sat down and they talked about team culture and incentive alignment. How do you get everybody putting one foot in front of the other at the same time to build and scale a team? It's a really meaningful conversation around values and culture. Here's Sam. So I have a lot of questions for you, mostly related to company culture. So some context on where we are, we're almost 50 people now. I would say that we're, we're bumping up against our third phase change of complexity. The first was just the founding team and a few more people. Coordination was super easy. Then between 10 and 25-ish people, we added things like our weekly team all hands. We added some process to add visibility and communication. We're now pushing up against 50 people and pretty much all of those things are breaking now. So I know that you've seen a lot of companies scale up and I'm sure you've seen process changes and culture changes as companies reach different phase changes. I was talking with my friend Sander Daniels, who's the founder of Thumbtack, mm-hmm. and he was saying that roughly every doubling it is a different company and you have to treat it like it's a totally different company. Mm. So you have to rethink every process, mm-hmm. every doubling. So we are now at that doubling and we're struggling to figure out how to how to manage the roughly 50 person. And I imagine that's going to last until maybe 100. So as you've seen companies scale, what are some of the cultural and procedural things you think we should be aware of? Well, I like that model of at least saying at a doubling from whenever, what we sort of believe to be true culturally about, you know, what was our ethos and what are the things that we want to keep versus change and and what are the things we have to make sure endure. So I think that's critical. I would say that in my experience, the founder 
slash CEO essentially defunct. It's very hard for the founder CEO not to basically be emblematic of the culture from employee one to a thousand, right? I mean, Amazon is still quite emblematic of Bezos. Hmm. You know, work backwards, a bunch of these ways of thinking were came from Bezos himself. I think the directness of Amazon comes from Bezos himself. I think the competitiveness of Amazon comes from Bezos himself. I think one of the things in Amazon's leadership principles, which I love, it's one of my favorite values is in terms of assessing people is people are right often. Good people have proven that they are good because they've made more right decisions than wrong decisions. And that that is often not explicit in lots of companies. And so you get a lot of people who've made a whole series of shitty decisions and there's no one saying, or or there doesn't seem to be accountability around the fact that like, hey, this guy's, all he does is make shitty decisions. (laughs) Where's the accountability? So I do think that the founder is, who the founder is and how the founder shows up and a lot of what they model ends up becoming the culture. That can shift because people can change, not dramatically, but people can change for sure and evolve. And so your culture can evolve in that way. I'd say that's your biggest lever. I think your second biggest lever is your first 10 employees really are the bedrock. Whatever norms come from you deciding to bring those people on board and then the norms that will be established by virtue of them hanging out with one another for the first 90 to 180 days, that's going to be a big set point for culture. And then I haven't used the doubling thing, although I like it. I think that for you, there's a threshold of When there were 10 people, you talked to all 10 people probably every day. There are now 50. You can't talk to 50 people one-on-one every day. So these concentric circles start to get further away from you at the center. And so you have less, ironically, right? As you succeed, you have less control. And so... Also, ironically, as the CEO, you become more in the influence business than in the mandate business because you have to win hearts and minds of your leaders and then they have to win hearts and minds of their teams. And so I would say that when there are 10 of you, your channel, your communication channel is probably email and going over to their desk. In our case, we're fully remote, so there's no desks. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... But you could still probably accommodate ad hoc. I bet when there are 10 people, you're calling most of them. Maybe you have one-on-ones with all of them. Maybe you have stand-ups every day with all of them. That does, that's not tenable at 50. But what tools do you have? Well, you have your, you know, you do the end of week rundown, which is a huge thing. That's going to scale really nicely. And you, by the way, can convey so many cultural norms through how you present that information. And you do an awesome job because and one of the things I really love about it is that you not only, you record it and then you actually send it to investors. All of that sort of over-communication and transparency reinforces alignment 
across all your constituents. You know all this because you're a lifelong entrepreneur. So you've probably learned hard lessons around when that yes. alignment starts to happen. In any case, and when you get to 500, that will still be a nice lever, but you won't be able to, you're not going to know everybody's name. You might get there at 100. Yep. And at 5,000, you're not going to be able to meet 95% of the people who work at your company. Yep. One-on-one -on -one at least. And so you start to have to become creative in terms of communicating norms and ethos in scalable ways. And one of the things that I learned at Facebook from Mark 2009, everyone thinks that Facebook was up and to the right. It was just easy, but actually <laughs> there were many points of reckoning around user growth and then even revenue. And in fact, 2009 was kind of a reckoning around revenue. It's like, are we going to make this thing go? Or are we going to start to go more sideways on the revenue front? And he showed up on January 3rd of 2009 wearing a tie. And this is like, you know, Mr. And we, we, uh, there are a thousand employees at this point or 500. And, you know, this is Mr. Hoodie, right? So the contrast <laughs> is stark. Yeah. He shows up with the tie and he says, I'm wearing a tie today and I'm going to wear a tie every day of 2009 because this is a serious year. This is a fascinating year. <laughs> and, you know, every fucking day, that year, you saw Mark wearing a tie. And that was a really ingenious way of communicating to people at scale. So I would say that you just, one of the things that you do, you have to, Facebook did a nice job with this too, which is using, you know, they had all these posters all over the company that communicated the ethos and the values, right? And that scales really nicely to thousands of people. And it's funny, they yeah. weren't cheesy, right? They weren't like those stupid in-flight magazine pictures of nature with like, hey, you know, spread your wings and you can soar <laughs> forever. Right? It was like, it was shit that really resonated. I mean, they were written by clever writers at Facebook who were trying to embody the values. So that's another example, another a final example, and then I'll stop that I've seen companies use, and we did this at Pinterest to some degree, is TVs and monitors are cheap and pictures and graphics and animations are powerful tools for communication. And you can just have those, you can have those all over the place. Yeah, one of the things that I wonder about culture, you touched on this a little bit, that oftentimes culture is a reflection of the founder. And I wonder, how much of this is emergent? I was talking with Zach Cantor from Steady, and he was saying that his theory on culture building is that it's really something that you crystallize. It's not something that you define. You memorialize it after it's already happened. Mm -hmm. And it's, mm -hmm. it's not the other way around. Most people think of you, totally agree. you write the culture down. Totally yeah. agree. Yeah. And, and in so, fact, to support that point, Sam, one of the best ways, and look, this is how humanity's worked since the beginning of humanity. Stories and anecdotes are possibly one of the most powerful things. Mm. And those are emergent, right? You yeah, don't have the right, fucking right. stories about the company before you start the company. 
before you write down the values, you have the stories after. Right. And then you repeat the stories. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, along the lines of one of our values at Pinterest was every problem is your problem. Something along those lines. Not exactly that. But it was sort of like, don't point. If you see a problem, like flag it and fix it. Kind of the broken window theory. And I told this story at an all hands. And we were 500 people, 1,000 people. And it involved me and our CTO at the time. And he saw me go and get coffee in the kitchen. And we had coffee in these like big makers with like a little lever on the top. And I went over and got coffee and it was empty. And it was early in the morning. I didn't think anyone was there. And they just walked away. I didn't do anything. And JJ, who was an Amazon guy, said, Tim, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) That is ridiculous. Yeah. And he not only flagged it, grabbed me, and this was one-on-one. He wasn't trying to embarrass me. No. And we're peers, by the way. He brings me over and he's like, let me show you how to do this. And he showed me how to do it. And, you know, that embodied a lot of what Pinterest, we wanted to be culturally. And it was emergent. And that story got told quite a bit. It reminds me of a story of my friend, Wade, Wade Irely, who started Surf Air. He's also a lifelong entrepreneur. He was telling me a story when he was doing Surf Air, where one of their values was around bringing joy to the people who fly Surf Air. And he told me a story of there was a flight attendant who noticed that a father and his son were going on a trip for their birthday, for the, the son's birthday. She took a picture of them had somebody on the ground at the arrival location print it out and get it framed. So when they arrived, they had this picture. And she would repeat that story over and over again as an example. And that's a really good idea. We don't do as much storytelling Mm -hmm. around culture and values as we should. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I'm going to add that as an action item. And you can cue them up, right? As you see them, as you see the stories unfold, you know, you can just put them in a folder, right? And To your point about it being emergent, maybe you look at a handful of stories and you're like, what's the common thing here? Yep. And maybe there is a new norm or values that we want to encapsulate in something. Yep. This ties into another thing. Something that I've been thinking a lot more about is, uh, so I did a podcast with Mark Randolph from Netflix. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he said, it seems to be a common thing, a theme among, uh, experienced CEOs is really indexing heavily on culture fit. And one of the things that Mark said is that culture misalignment is infinitely destructive. Weigh it at infinity, (laughs) which is not the way that most people think about it. So like, well, he's so talented, like you wouldn't want to lose this person. But I wonder, because something that I've been struggling with is our culture is pretty weird. We are fully remote. We've really leaned into remote. Everything is asynchronous. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, when they start working at levels, I think our engineers average something like two meetings per week. And yeah, there's very, very few meetings, very little communication. And for people who are used to playing whack-a-mole on Slack all day, it can be pretty anxiety-inducing to just not have that. Not have that constant dopamine 
yeah, it's like a throughout the day. losing internet connection. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. Like, people will ask during the first couple of weeks of levels, like, well, what do I do now? Work. <laughs> you do work yeah, now. You- <laughs> yeah. It can be really anxiety inducing, which is one of the reasons why our onboarding is at least a full month. For some people, six to eight weeks of just onboarding with no deliverables because it's a real culture shock. Socialize. So, yeah. yeah. So I wonder, one of the questions that I have is related to cultural misalignment on some of these things. I've seen people who were originally skeptical or would not have qualified as like a strong culture fit initially before we really understood what it is we were doing. They've really adapted and some of them have become the strongest advocates of culture internally. And I'm wondering what is the, I don't know if you have a good framework for thinking about culture fits and assessing culture fits and giving people direct feedback about it. And if there are people on a team who just don't seem to understand it, how do you get to a point where either they are now on board and they get it? Do you have experience with people who are not on board with some core values? Like some of ours are treat people like adults. Yeah. We're a team, not a family. Yeah. Disagree and commit. Yeah. Some of these are fairly common. Yep. But people who don't totally understand those. Yep. Have you seen people turn things around and get on board? For sure. One of the examples, which is, this is sort of public, but it's not talked about a lot, is it's even more interesting now because he's the CTO at Facebook. But Andrew Bosworth, who is known as Boz, he and I started at Facebook around the same time. And he's been fairly public about the fact that he was, it's not that he was at odds with a stated value, he was at odds with a common value across lots of companies, which is like, he was heavy handed. He was really harsh. He would sometimes say things that were inappropriate. I remember him saying like, if you don't agree with me, I'm going to punch you in the face. Things like that. And, and admittedly, put this in context, this was 15 years ago. So yeah. that was a crazy thing to say, but it wasn't like, you didn't get fired on the spot when you said something like that. Right. Especially at Facebook where the average age is 22 and you got a bunch of type right. A people and But I say that because they then tried to put him into a management role. He failed, leadership and management role. He failed. And they kind of put him out to pasture in the sense that it was like, okay, you're back to being an individual contributor. You go in that corner and you think long and hard about how you want to be. And I don't actually know the exact process, but I worked with him closely for years on various things and saw this evolution of this person. And now, he is was a CTO of the fourth biggest company yep. in the world. And he's a culture carrier. He's probably Mark's most trusted lieutenant. That's a pretty big evolution and shift. And I've seen people, and that's a function of, and I think in this case, by the way, just, and I'll finish the anecdote. This is a function of Andrew changing but also the company changing. And what I mean by that is that his fight and his, call it healthy dogma, fits the company better in 2021 and 2022 than it did in 2010. 
when they were a darling, right? He can now use that grit and that fight to shoot out, not in. And that's effective. And that's actually what the company arguably needs. The other thing I was thinking of fully separate when you were talking about people who've adapted is, and I just thought of it as you were talking, I do think there is a way when you interview somebody to screen for adaptivity and possibly cultural adaptivity in a way that may be explicit, right? It's like, how have you adapted your style to fit a job or a role or a company? And then there may be some subterranean ways to get at it because I totally agree with you. And some of your best hires can be ones that, and some of them reshape the culture in a good way, right? In a way that you wanted to. So one of the things that we're going to be doing some experimentation with is uh, I've interviewed a bunch of executive coaching firms and we found one that we like and they understand our culture and our values. Mm -hmm. And we're going to start expanding this. I think by the end of this quarter, the goal is to have everyone on leadership with an executive coach. And then eventually actually everyone on the team working with an executive coach. And like, it's, even at the lowest level. You are ahead of the curve and you are spot on. Incredibly leveraged to do that. Yeah, it feels like I was talking with the Vinay who started Loom about this. Mm. And one of the things that they're putting more effort into is training eng managers into being coaches. And I asked him the question of like, why not just have coaches? <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. It seems like you want to do coaches or Yeah. But it seems like I don't think most engineering managers want to be coaches. Probably not. And so probably. Yeah. Not. I think you're right. A lot of them don't want to be managers. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. I think that is a spot on Pinterest invested heavily in coaches at the exec level and down through the middle of the company early. Mm. And it was expensive, but I think it was money well spent. And there were a lot of things that Pinterest got wrong, but I think that was certainly yep. helpful in terms of cohesion, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. I think it was really good. You know, one of the values that you guys have that I love is we are a team, not a family. No. And I think that I've seen companies go down the path of we're a family and it is dysfunctional in the same way that just many families are dysfunctional, right? For the reason yeah. that you're trapped in a family. <laughs> yeah. I have heard when people talk about just to counter this value, just to lay the field, even though I do actually violently agree with this value, I do sort of love you hear about Lego and that company, which is a family business. And they do uh, attribute some of their success to being a family business because they're like, look, we had to figure it out because we couldn't quit. So there is something about being trapped that can create virtue and goodness, but not being a family and calling yourself one is a problem. And creates yes. massive issues around if you want to be direct and honest and hold a high bar of performance. It's really tough. Yep. 
So I love, yeah. I love that you've, I have not seen that. Most of these other values I have seen some variant of, but we are a team, not a family, I think is a really crisp way of communicating what you want to establish culturally. Yep. It's funny because we've seen so many different reactions. Some people react very negatively to it. Yep. And I can kind of understand it. They say they don't want their relationships at work to feel mercenary or impersonal. And I understand that. And the relationships at levels are not impersonal. Well, what but, if the team does not have mercenary yeah. relationships? Yep. People who play on the same professional basketball team have great relationships. But they're also aware that they're in it for a larger objective. And so if somebody's not performing, you have to be able to replace that person. So the people who get it, I think, really understand it. Yeah. I think that it's funny because I've also talked to people who have worked in companies that have this family language mm -hmm. and they often talk about how incredibly pathological it is where you are pressured into doing things that you don't want to mess. do because yep, they operate like a team, but they pretend like they're a family and it's often really manipulative yeah. and negative. Yeah. There's a similar cultural choice that we made at Pinterest. And around the same time, Airbnb made this decision and we were the first, I think, two companies to really do it who were high profile. And that was to essentially, without going into the minutia, one of the issues that can happen with early-ish employees who have incentivized stock options mm -hmm. is it can be really expensive for them to leave from yep. a tax standpoint. And... That seemed quite broken to us. In yeah. fact, we knew of instances where people were being kept. We were keeping people at the company because we felt bad. We yeah. didn't want to saddle them with a tax bill. Or it was basically like pay a big tax bill or walk without any equity for the time that you've worked at the company. Yeah. And so we ended up with our lawyers creating something that allowed them to walk without penalty. It's another example of that's how a team should be. Those are the mechanics that a team compensation should have. It's not how a family would work. And it's right. way healthier. Yeah. One of the things that I'm curious, since I know you think a lot about this stuff, is uh, we've run a lot of kind of wacky experiments to try to test the boundaries of a lot of these things. Like giving everyone an executive coach is pretty uncommon. Another thing that we do during the third week of onboarding, because we're remote and async, we really want people to lean more into tools like Loom, asynchronous video and audio. Mm -hmm. So for the third week of onboarding, people are only allowed to communicate async. in video. Yeah. In async video. That's it. It's the only well, form of communication that's allowed. And it's really uncomfortable because people aren't used to it. But over time, you do get used to it. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that's one of the experiments that we've done. GitLab, I asked the same question to Darren from GitLab. Mm -hmm. He said that if he could do it again, he would have a concept of re-onboarding. So like every year, you go through a month of re-onboarding. That's a great idea. Yeah. So I would ask you the question of what are some crazy experiments you wish you could run on company culture for a company roughly our size that you think would really, we could learn something from? Well... You said crazy. And so I think, <laughs> I think crazy, I think not accountable for the fallout. 
<laughs> always, I, and this is the crazy, probably the craziest one I'll no. think of, and then I'll think of less crazy ones, but there's so much consternation and speculation around compensation, yep. both equity and cash. And I have always sort of imagined this world where it was just on a sheet that everyone could look at. Buffer does that. They're one of the only companies I know of that has public compensation data. Interesting. We actually had this conversation. By the way, if I started a company right now, I wouldn't do it. I think I yeah. think it is probably creates more consternation than not. But yeah, I like it. In well, the, yeah, what's interesting about it, especially for Buffer, all compensation data is public at Buffer. It's on a spreadsheet on the internet. Anyone can see it. You can go to their website and look at it right now. What it does is it's a cultural lightning rod. If you're the kind of person who's okay with that, you're going to be okay with a lot of the other stuff that they do. <laughs> totally. And yeah. And so we have this conversation. We have a memo on transparency, on what that line is for us. Yeah. And I was pushing for everything public, compensation to public. I don't really care. Yeah. But there were a lot of things like publishing all of our investor updates, yeah. publishing all of our team all hands. Yeah. A lot of people were on board with it. I was the person wandering the desert by myself, yeah. pushing for public compensation data. Yeah. And I think it's telling that even a company that is as transparent and as open as Bridgewater, the only thing that they don't have public <laughs> is compensation data. Yeah. It's the only thing. Yeah. So there's probably a reason yeah. for that. Yeah. It'd be interesting to hear what Dalio's principles were, right, for not making that. Yeah. Sure. The other thing that is done today, yeah. but I think still is controversial and it'd be interesting mm -hmm. how you guys handle this. And this was a lot. I give Mark Zuckerberg credit because this was 13 years ago that he really pushed this into Facebook, which is that most bonus, most sort of compensation gets done by virtue of, it's kind of peanut buttered across the company, right? Mm -hmm. The spoils get spread, you know, kind of evenly. And that's just doesn't map to value creation, right? Value creation sure. is much spikier. And you've got these outlier people who create tremendous value. And then you've got people yep. who are half a standard deviation from the mean, create a little value. And he, to his credit, when refresh compensation, this is stock, right? This isn't cash. It yep. applies to cash. People who were in the top 10% got six times as much as people who were in the 50th percentile. Yep. That's still kind of viewed a little bit radical compared yep. with, well, let's give the top quartile 100% and we'll give, you know, we'll, we'll give them 2x and we'll give the 75th percentile or the top, the second quartile 30%. Come on. That yep. just doesn't mimic how value got created across the organization. So let's let comp reflect it meritocratically. I think that's a critical thing. It is hard. And the hard part is that someone who kind of drifted performance-wise between 60th percent and I think one time I got 90th percent, I was fucking pissed when I was 60th percent <laughs> yeah. or 50th. And yep. really, it can be very hard for your type A person who probably went to a college with great inflation and has never gotten a B minus or a C plus 
So there's yeah. a, it's a tremendous amount of work for managers to communicate to someone, hey, you're 60th percentile and you should feel really good about that because look at your company, look at your peer set. Yeah, it's funny. One of the things that Netflix talks a lot about is uh, they have a rule, which I think I understand why they have this, but one of their rules is fire adequate performers. And I think we've talked about this internally. I think I maybe just have a semantic issue with it because somebody who's performing adequately, you can have high expectations for what adequate means. Correct. Definitionally. Correct. It kind of feels like a false promise. Yeah. I think you're, you're like, yeah, you're, it is semantic. Yeah. But I understand the intent because it's really easy to justify. No, no, no. They're doing adequate. They're doing fine. It's hard to get over that hurdle yeah. of firing somebody yeah. for the purpose of talent density and yeah. keeping that bar really high. And so I, I think I understand how they got there, yeah. which is that it's anchoring further in the other direction. Yeah. yeah. We compensate pretty generously, especially in the form of equity, just across the board. Mm -hmm. A lot of this, honestly, is just because I'm personally quite lazy when it comes to doing actual work. <laughs> and so I much prefer having very capable senior people on the team. I think of our 40-ish people we have now, probably half are senior leadership buyers. And that's just because I don't want to have to think about this stuff. So well, and you're going to scale. Um, I mean, that's certainly the funny explanation, but you're going to get so much benefit from that scale-wise, right? Most people yeah, are totally. behind, not most people, all people are behind on executive hiring. So to be yeah. ahead is going to be, I think, will really pay dividends. Um, yeah. One of the other concepts that I think a lot about is this idea of, we'll call it cultural entropy. When you look at companies, cultural entropy tends towards lower talent. It tends towards lots of meetings. It tends towards, you can kind of envision exactly the culture. I imagine that's what cable companies live with. They are the lowest entropy state uh, or sorry, the highest entropy state of a company. Yeah. Once you've removed all incentives yeah. for creative yeah. thought and you have them in a monopoly and you have them there for a long time, it's something that's highly regulated. That is the high entropy state. That's what leads so, to your repairman showing up an hour five of a four hour window, right? Yeah. I sometimes feel like I'm making this stuff up, but I just moved into an apartment in New York and I spent two hours on hold to get somebody who then told me I needed to go to the store to do something. I went to the store. They told me I needed to call the person. So I called the person while I'm in the store to verify some things. This whole process took me more than half a day just to get internet turned on. Yeah. This feels like a joke, but it's not. So we've been thinking a lot about corrective mechanisms for this entropy problem. So something that I learned from Darren at GitLab they want people to work more asynchronously. So one of the patterns that they have to fight that is every sixth week is async week. So every sixth week, nobody on the team is allowed to communicate synchronously for the entire week. Yeah. It's a reminder to fight that culture of meetings where he said oftentimes people start accumulating more one-on-ones and then they do async week and they realize, oh, we didn't need to be doing these synchronously. Yeah. Let's switch back to async. Yeah. So it's a corrective mechanism. Yeah. 
we often use EAs internally to manually check things. Yep. It's like one of the things that we have that a point of entropy that we want to avoid is over-classification of documents. Something where basically a document might only be seen by four or five people or only the leadership team. And so our EA is once a week, find every document that only the leadership team has access to. Then they post it to the leadership channel and says, which of these can be declassified? And most weeks we have at least a couple documents we can declassify. I love it. Yeah. So what are some forms of cultural entropy that you see teams tend towards? And I don't know if you have any thoughts around corrective mechanisms for them. Well, I love the meeting one. And I think this isn't a great one, but it's a decent one, right? Force. And we did this when we were a thousand people. We would just reset the calendar. The calendar just resets to empty on January 1 and rebuild as needed, right? Rebook as needed. That's a pretty easy one. I think it, the problem is by December the next year, you're probably back in the same place. I think email, I haven't worked in a big company for a while, but it used to be email. And the state of entropy was massive email volume. And that may be Slack volume now, but this gets a little bit to the async point. But I always thought that it would be useful to have uninterrupted time every morning where you weren't even, you know, that coders want need to be connected, but like maybe there's no email and there's no Slack for four hours. Yes. You know, it's funny. We actually have a tool that helps us with that the tool is mailman mm. the websites, mailman HQ. Yeah. And what it does is it batches all of your emails. Yeah. And only sends them to you at certain times. Yeah. It's a really, really simple tool yeah. and it makes a huge difference yeah. in terms of how personally I interact with email. Yeah. I only get email twice a day. I think at 12 yeah. and at four. If you could batch at a company level yeah. at the same time and then do something with Slack and then something around, you know, you don't have this problem, but for a in-person culture, we used to have symbols that allowed us to be interrupted, right? Whether that's headphones on. Some people didn't want to yeah. wear headphones. We had like these little, <laughs> yeah. we had this little, I bought people these little caution cones they could put on top of their monitor. Uh-huh. Meant, like, do not disturb yeah. context switching for this person. Yeah. I love the mental model, by the way, because we just, human beings, right? Cal Newport writes a lot about these things and just wrote a book called A World Without Email, Hmm. where he gives a couple of reasonable ideas around how to create cues and batches and so forth and does kind of imagine a world without email. What would that look like? I'm adding up my list. Yeah. I mean, you could be really extreme, right? Get rid of email. I don't know. Yeah. I have thoughts on that. I can send you a couple hundred pages of documentation on communication principles. Cool. (laughs) One of them we touch on is email. Yeah. There are things that email does really well. Yeah. And there are things that email does very poorly. Yeah. And so just understanding those, I think, is important. I'll uh, say one more thing on this entropy thing. Yeah. And it's probably most relevant for you as the CEO, but others as well. I'd say... I think some of the best executives, and certainly this has been documented, some of the best investors 
are quite comfortable doing 180s on decisions and opinions. And we have this entropy that we've created. I think our culture, identity politics, et cetera, have reinforced this notion that we can't change our view. There's a whole political, cultural thing, but I'm just saying on, on a business topic. Yeah. And you can change your view and you probably should. And they've looked at this with investment managers. They're sort of like, I have high conviction and I never change my view, right? And then they look at the ones that really do. There's a book written called The Art of Decision-Making by an investor that talks about this notion of flipping and being okay with it. And you know, if you read the Jobs biography, he was quintessential flip-flopper. Yep. And so I think that's another thing around entropy that's just good to be aware of. And it's a really nice thing to model, right? Because if the CEO founder is modeling this intransigent, dogmatic thing, then all your leaders are going to behave that way and and everyone's just going to be dug in. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, a quote by uh, John Maynard Keynes, where he says, uh, when the facts change, I change my opinions. What do you do, sir? (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. There's a great, there was a woman who had a podcast for a while. She was trying to find people who change their minds on really seminal things. Yep. And I loved the concept of it because her, and <laughs> she said, I, I talked to her one time. She said, I'm trying to make having a reckoning or changing your mind on something seminal, the sexiest thing in the world. Because mm-hmm. right now it's not, it's weakness. No. Yep. It culturally. It's funny. So I host weekly salon dinners with usually eight to 10 founder friends. Yeah. And they're all over the place in terms of topic. And we've had some really interesting ones where people have had a significant change in opinion. Yeah. I think a lot of this is the topics are interesting, the people are interesting. Most of this is probably just the people that we bring to these. Oh, you're seeing the, the course of, of the dinner. Yeah. Wow, that's super cool. Yeah. But one that was the most surprising just because of the, the shift in mindset was so significant was we did one on anonymous, unlimited political contributions. Oh, yeah. yeah. Don't get me started. <laughs> well, well, it was funny. So we did like a straw poll at the beginning. Everyone was opposed to it, which is not shocking. And by the end of the dinner, every person but one had flipped their position to be in favor when you actually think through the implications wow. of what it would mean to regulate and limit political contributions and remove anonymity, the implications are actually quite problematic in a way that a lot of them hadn't really thought about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, every person but one changed their mind. The only person who had not changed their mind, I think fundamentally, he also doesn't believe in free speech. So, yeah, that's it's going to be hard to move him on that. Yeah. But, you know, it's that's super cool. Yeah. So they're really fun. I think a lot of it is just getting the right people in the room. Yeah. That's cool. Well, you're thinking about, God, all the stuff that really matters. I mean, I think culture often is underinvested in early and then you can't change it or you you can, but so many of the foundational substrates are flawed. 
we've had some early conversations. We had a conversation with Patrick Collison from Stripe, who mentioned how we asked him, broadly speaking, what would you do differently if you could go back to when you were 12 people? And he said, to paraphrase, spend more on culture. Whatever you're spending now, double it, double it again, and it's still not enough. Wow. So like the single biggest thing to focus on is like really focus on culture at this stage because I think the reason is that if you don't spend it now, you can't spend it later. Correct. Like the, the ship has sailed. Correct. You're kind of stuck. Yeah, it's the ultimate leverage of a dollar today, right? It'll, yep. it'll be useless. If you're successful, it'll be useless in five years. Right. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. If you think of any ideas for cultural experiments to run or... Yeah. I, Sorry, I, just quickly, because I'm surprised I haven't told this story and it's a good story. And it, yep. it counters Collison's point, I think a little bit, hmm. even though I think... 99% of the time, he's right. When I was almost 20 years ago, I happened to be doing venture investing early, early, early in my career. And I was doing it within JP Morgan. And I was doing it right when a CEO transition was happening. So Bill Harrison was handing the reins to Jamie Dimon. And Jamie Dimon is really viewed, I think, as one of the best CEOs in the world. He runs JP Morgan today and, and has guided that company mm -hmm. through the financial crisis, et cetera, et cetera. So Jamie Dimon takes over <laughs> and I'm sitting at my cube in San Francisco and a story starts to percolate in San Francisco. And the story is, which is a true story, that the night before, Jamie Dimon went outside the banking, the investment banking building and saw a line of a hundred town cars waiting for people to get done with their jobs and, you know, take them home, investment bankers. So he went car to car and he knocked on the window and he asked the driver, who are you here to pick up? And what time did you get here? And right, how long have you been waiting? And then he called the person and said, hey, this is Jamie Dimon. I'm the new CEO. JP Morgan, I noticed your town car has been waiting for you for an hour. You think this is a good use of company? <laughs> and the company at the time, it's 250,000 people now, it's 80,000 people when I was there. And it spread in 24 hours to all 80,000 people. And it changed yeah. the norm around spending. And that's a really unique way to change one small aspect of a culture and a pretty mechanical aspect of the culture. So I do think it can be done. It is way harder, um, but exceptional leaders will find ways through things like that to change the tone. <laughs>